morning, Sycamore View. Good to see you. Glad you're here. I've been talking the last six or seven weeks that I believe that a sign of a mature follower of Jesus is that they are people who are striving to excel at the invite. That people we encounter in life, there's an invitation for something. There's an invitation into God, an invitation into a relationship. And for us, we've got to discern with God of how are we extending invitations to others. And there may be some of you here, you're here because someone extended an invitation to you. I don't know what God wants to do in your life today, but I ask today that God will touch down in some lives. I'm glad you're here. We're a church. Our vision is to be about the restoration of God. We want to see dead things come to life. Our mission is that we want to help people see Jesus. This is the journey we are on as a church. Do you know uh, what the widest freeway in the United States of America is? And the answer is not Sam Cooper and 240, all right? The, the largest freeway in the United States, the widest, is in Houston, Texas. I've been on this freeway. It's 26 lanes wide. You can see it here. There are 12 lanes that people, like everyone drives on, six on each side. There are eight lanes that are accessed, four on each side. And there are six other lanes, three on each side for um, transportation, buses, and HOV lanes. 26 lanes. I've been stuck in standstill traffic in Houston, Texas at 11 o'clock at night, not because there were any wrecks, but because there were that many people driving out on the road. But this was not, this is not the widest freeway in the world. The widest freeway in the world is in Hong Kong. It's 50 lanes wide. <laughs> Can you imagine? Because the way we do it in Memphis is you always got that one person that wants the fast lane, even if they know they have to exit in a half mile, and they're going to slam on their brakes to get all the way over. Can you imagine in Hong Kong for the person who drives that way, and they're way on the left and got to get way over on the right? Would you rather have to drive on that freeway or to take a dare to do a tightrope? Uh, I'm all up for adventures. I love heights. I love roller coasters. I've jumped out of airplanes. I've been on forms of bungee jumps. I've jumped off cliffs. I, I love adventures. I would not do this. <laughs> Even with that little safety rope, and I don't know how much of a safety rope that is, even with that thing hanging on the leg, I don't know if I would do that. And then there are other roads I'm sure you've been on before. If you go to the next one, this is a, um, if you go to the next slide, this is a kind of, uh, this is Poplar Avenue, just for those of you wondering. <laughs> this is right there by Mendenhall and my favorite Chick-fil-A there. Uh, is what it feels like sometimes. My wife grew up in West Texas. There are like no trees out there. It's as flat as can be. And I remember the first time we were dating, I drove to East Texas. I was doing a gospel meeting, 20 years old. And we were driving to East Texas. We're deep in the piney woods. And it's like you're driving on Parkway down by Rhodes College where the limbs of the trees, you can barely see the sky. It's just the, the trees are just hanging, branches hanging over. And Casey was so claustrophobic. She just had to close her eyes for a while. But then, sometimes you've been on roads, maybe not just like that, but you've been on narrow roads. So let, let me go back. Can we go back to the picture of Hong Kong? This wide freeway. The way Jesus talks about roads, he says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, some people are on this, the easiest road. It's the widest road, and it is the road that leads to destruction, and a lot of people want it. 
It's this wide road where everything goes. There's no truth. There's no absolute truth. We just believe everybody goes to the same place in the end. It's this wide road. Now, what many of us have done in churches is to push back against the wide road is we've gone to a theology that makes faith sound like a tightrope. Where it's just, you're just on this tightrope and you're walking and it's not really what you do. It's all the things you don't do. You don't drink, you don't dance, you don't play cards, you don't dip, you don't chew or date people who do. You're just on this, you're just on this tightrope. <laughs> hoping that there's not just a little breeze or a wind or, or a distraction that makes you fall. And there's the image of God while you're on the tightrope. And he's not there to keep you safe. He's there with his arms crossed, just waiting to see if you fall. And that's not the image of what Jesus paints is the narrow road. There's the wide road and faith isn't a tight rope. When Jesus talks about the narrow way, he's talking about this life of discipleship where you need to understand that the things that matter in life are the things that will be with you forever. And it's not the car you drive or the house you live in or your retirement plan. All those things can be important. It's that the narrow way has room for you and only you. For one allegiance, no other gods in your life sold out to God. The book of Mark is a book about discipleship, about following Jesus. And the more we dive into Mark, the more it is costly discipleship. The following Jesus costs you something. And it costs him everything. So if you open your Bibles in Mark chapter 1, this is where I want to lead us today. We're just going to, I think there's just five verses we're going to talk about today. Been in this series now for six weeks. A series uh, on the gospel of Mark for, from now all the way up to Thanksgiving. We're going to be in Mark 1 through 10. And we're looking at all these things Jesus does and ways he teaches and ways he lives. And today in Mark chapter 1 verse 35, listen to this. In the morning... While it was still very dark, he got up and he went out to a deserted place and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. And Jesus answered, let us go on to the neighboring town so that I may proclaim the message there also. For this is what I came out to do. This is a 24-hour period of time. If you were here last week, I walked you through this 24-hour day in the life of Jesus where he woke up, he went to a synagogue. It's a story right before this. He's teaching in a synagogue. Then there's a demon-possessed man who was there in this worship service. He drives out the demon. Then he goes to a house. He drives out fever. And then all these sick people and people who are demon-possessed come to Jesus. So it's it's this day full of ministry. Jesus is teaching. He's driving out demons, declaring victory over evil. He's healing diseases. More people are coming to him. And then I guess at some point he went to sleep. And then he wakes up early in the morning and he goes to a solitary place where he prays. So does this mean Jesus was a morning person? Maybe. I don't know. It means that there were times in Jesus' life where he understood how important it was for him to be with God and pray. To me, when I see Jesus, there are a few things that stick out to me about this story. One, Jesus had needs. Sometimes we think Jesus was God and there were no needs in his life. Jesus had needs. Jesus knew that it was possible for him to become so emotionally exhausted that he may forget the direction that God had him on. Jesus was prone to emotional exhaustion, to stress, to tension, to being distracted about his purpose. How many of you could say the same thing about your life today? 
And Jesus acknowledged that there is this need in his life, so he goes away to be with God. I don't think the reason Jesus went to a solitary place was to set an example so that you would know how important it is for you to go to a place to pray with God. I don't think Jesus was just setting an example here, trying to model what you should do. Jesus needed this for himself. Jesus was a good Jew. Jesus learned from his mom and maybe his earthly dad that we don't know much about Joseph throughout the rest of Jesus' life, but he learned from them how vital it was to be a faithful Jew who connected to God. And part of being a faithful Jew is you took your morning prayer time seriously. You see this in the Psalms. In Psalm, there are a couple of Psalms. In Psalm chapter 5, verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I plead my case to you and watch. In Psalm 88, verse 13, but O Lord, but I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Jesus was a faithful Jew. He, he knew how important it was to take time in the morning to connect with God. This would be important for us too, right? Not just to wake up and you're already running late because you hit the snooze too many times and you're trying to get out the door, trying to get the kids out the door. You go into work and then a few hours into your day, you're all stressed out and then you, you decide you need to pray so God can alleviate some of the stress. There's something about waking up in the morning and the first thing you do, even if it's just a brief moment, is to center your heart in God so you live from a foundation that is established in God. Not just wait for things to happen in your day that call you into prayer. Go back to verse 35. It says, early in the morning. In the Greek, it's not even the morning. It's kind of a, a weird statement in the Greek. It's that at night still much. It's while it was, some of your versions don't even use morning. Some of your versions say like why it was still dark. Like the sun hasn't even started to come up yet. And Jesus goes and he prays. He acknowledges after this long day of ministry that he had to wake up the next day to connect with God. So he goes away to do this. Have you ever had a moment in your life or maybe you're in seasons in your life right now where you were so tired, you're so stressed, you're so emotionally exhausted that you were so tired that you can't even wake up early to pray. And usually those are the times where you can't afford not to wake up and pray. That may be a double negative. Let's make it a triple negative, all right? There are times where you cannot afford not to take time not to pray. <laughs> that you are in a season in your life where exhaustion, stress, and tension are so high that it is vital that you wake up in the morning and live from your foundation and your centered place with God. And Jesus goes away to do this. I can't help but just ask about this. Like, is God more present in nature than God is present in the confines of a house where you wake up? I don't think so. I don't think the Bible teaches that. So why couldn't Jesus just wake up and I'm assuming he's in Simon Peter's house wherever he was sleeping. Why could Jesus not just wake up in that spot and lean up in bed or roll over or, and just connect with God right there after he brushed his teeth, of course, you know, because the Bible does talk about offering up a sweet aroma to God. So it's good, you know, to throw a little mouthwash in before you pray in the morning. But why did he have to go to a solitary place? So he wakes up early in the morning to go to a solitary place to pray. I want to offer a few things to you today that are practical, helpful, hopeful. I want you to take a few notes on these things because I, I write sermons and I pray of how can people mature and develop to live into what God wants you to be. And here's something for you. You need to learn in the midst of your distracted, busy life to connect with God in the midst of distractions and busyness. 
Some of you have jobs and some of you have life where you know that you have 8, 10, 12 hours where the idea or the thought of you being able to disengage for 30 minutes to go and pray just isn't going to happen for you. You've got to learn to value those 15 to 30 second periods of time you have in a day to connect with God, to believe that something's happening in those moments. Uh, when I hear people today talk about how busy they are, like I'm just so busy. Usually, in my opinion, and I've talked to leaders. I remember I was in a conversation with some leaders a few months ago. And, and one thing we acknowledge is usually the people who talk about being so busy aren't usually the busiest people. Usually people who talk about being so busy are really the most distracted people. Here's how most of us live now. I don't know about you, but when I pull my laptop open in the day, and that's what I work from, I keep numerous tabs open all day. Sometimes up minimum of five, sometimes all the way up to 10 tabs. I have my email, my calendar, I have some other projects I'm working on. So I'm working on one, but the moment you see one tab ding or blink, then you're now you're focused on what, what did that what was that email that just came in? What, what does this one over here mean? And you're just constantly moving through tabs. Our brains work the same way now. We live in this world where we are so distracted, where it's like we got 10 tabs open in our brain. And the moment one blinks, we're gone from one task to another. Henry Nouwen, who writes on spiritual discipline, says one of the greatest challenges for people is they never develop prayer lives where they pray longer than two minutes because in those first two minutes, you're bombarded by all kind of distractions and to-do lists that you, you can't even get past two minutes. And are we, where, are we willing and eager and courageous enough to push through that first wave of distractions to settle our places in our hearts in God? So you've got to learn to pray through distractions and chaos and develop some disciplines and practices in your life. But church, it's also vital for you to know when the time is in your life, when you need to disengage from what you are doing, to take some longer period of time to feast with God. Because you do not live on nibbles alone. You don't live on snacks alone. We've got to learn like, to sit and really feast with God. So Jesus goes to a solitary place. He doesn't just wake up and pray right there. He goes away to a solitary place. What would your solitary place be? And, and Simon and his companions, they go and they find Jesus. And here's what they say. Jesus, everyone is searching for you. It's like everyone is searching for you because all those people, you, that, that girl you healed last night, that, that demon you drove out, she went home and she told people and she knows someone who knows someone who has a demon and they need you to drive that one out. And that person you healed last night, they have an auntie or a grandma or a sister who's in need of healing too. Like everyone is searching for you. This wasn't the only time like people were searching for Jesus. When Jesus was a child in the temple, he's the age of 12, you remember his parents came in Luke 2, 48, and they're like, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. From the age of 12, all through Jesus' earthly life and ministry, people are searching for Jesus. And it's not like Jesus is playing hide and go seek from people. But what you see literally in the Greek, it's not just everyone is searching for you. It's everyone seeks you. They come to Jesus, everyone seeks you. Could the same be said about you? Could the same be said about our church? That, hey, we are, we are seeking and searching for Jesus. He's not playing hide and go seek from us. 
He's not making this hard to find him, but are we searching for him? And here's Jesus' response. Let us go. They come to him, and the disciples have ministry for Jesus to do. And Jesus' response is, let us go on to the neighboring town so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I have came out to do. Jesus said no to some ministry opportunities in order to say yes to some other ministry opportunities. This time with God gave Jesus some clarity to know that there are some things he needed to say no to to say yes to other things. Because those of us who have a bad habit of saying yes to every invitation that comes our way often rob ourselves of doing some really good ministry because we're too busy doing all kinds of things. How many of you have a problem saying yes to everything? Just a show of hands. How many of you know someone else in the room that should have just raised their hand, right? You're probably sitting next to them. Billy Graham. There was once a college up in Seattle, and they had this huge commitment service. And thousands of people would be there. Commencement service are going to be these students and their families. And it was this huge event. Every year they rented out this exquisite, beautiful um, opera house in Seattle, invited all, it was just this huge, like, family reunion. Christians would gather from all over the place, and they would bring in a well-known speaker who could just bless the family of God who came. And one year, they had some connections to Billy Graham, and they thought, we're going to get Billy Graham to come and do this. So they called up Billy Graham, and they asked him to come and to speak at this commencement service. And Billy Graham's response was, thank you so much for inviting me, but God has called me to be an evangelist. And if I said yes to this opportunity to come and bless the family of God there, I would have to say no to opportunities to go and preach the gospel to sinners who are in need of Jesus. So I'm going to have to decline your offer. There are times where you've got to learn to say no to things that may be really good so that you can say yes to things that may be better. And here, what Jesus did, and this is so important, Jesus refused to allow the crowds to define who he was going to be in ministry and in life. So what Jesus says, literally what he says, and it doesn't come across this way in almost every English version you read, but literally what he says is, let us go another way into the neighboring towns. Jesus' response to them isn't even let us go back through the town so I can just give a farewell and a goodbye to all the people I healed yesterday. It's like, let us go around all these people who were searching for me so I can go and do some other ministry in other towns. And here's where I think this is important for you. Because apparently in this solitary place where Jesus went to pray, there was clarity given to Jesus about his mission and his purpose. That he went away, he's with God, he realizes there are great opportunities in ministry right in front of him. Yet the clarity came to him that, hey, the call of God for Jesus was not to stay in one central place and for people to keep coming to Jesus for healing and for demons to be cast out. It wasn't supposed to be this way. It was for Jesus to be able to go to all these surrounding places to declare the goodness of the kingdom of God. So here's the thing for you, okay? There are a lot of pieces I hope you get from this message this morning. Here's one of them. There is no guarantee that if you take time this week to get alone with God and go to a solitary place, that clarity about your life or clarity about direction is going to come to you. There's no guarantee in this. 
I wish I could stand here and guarantee if you give God a day or a prayer time or a week of prayer time that God is going to make a decision in your life abundantly clear. There's no guarantee that could happen. There's no guarantee it will happen. But you got a much better shot to hear a word from God if you trust a solitary place. Because I think God is looking at us almost every day thinking, man, there is so much I want to teach you. There's so much I want to give you, but you're not giving me the time of day. There's so much I would love to inject into your life and speak into your life, but you are not, you can't even be still for a moment. So Jesus goes to a solitary place, comes out of the solitary place by saying, hey, we're not going back to where we were last night. We're going to another place. And Jesus comes out of this solitary place with clarity about what his mission is. And his mission, he says it, is to go and preach. I've got to go preach the good news. And Jesus started going to all these other synagogues, which you see in verse 39. He goes to all these other synagogues preaching and driving out demons. The clarity of his mission was not to heal the world of disease. Not then. One day he will. It's not to heal the world of disease. It was to declare the good news about the kingdom of God. And as he declared the good news of God, he's driving out demons, declaring victory and hope over evil. So let me break it down like this. Here's one slide. Four things we just learned from Jesus. And then I'm going to give you four things to take into your week. And here they are from Jesus. What you learn right here after a long day of ministry... Jesus is not too tired to seek God. He understood he was driven by mission. He understood through prayer time that where his worth and where his focus needed to be on. Uh, Jesus displayed healthy rhythm. He knew when it was time to work, when it was time to preach, when it was time to pray, when it was time to play. There was healthy rhythm in his life. And last but not least, and I think this is important, he didn't do this every single morning. But he knew when he needed it. You read in Luke chapter 5, 16, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. You don't read that every single morning Jesus woke up in the wee hours of the night to go away to be with God. It's like Jesus picked his spots. He knew when the season was right. He knew when that day or that season of ministry was where he needed to disengage in order to engage the heart of God. So I don't want you walking away thinking, I've got to make these huge big commitments to wake up super early every single day. But you need to know when you are in those seasons of emotional exhaustion and you are stressed out, the time for you to have a time with God is not to wait until Christmas or that next vacation. It's what can I do today to carve out just a little bit of time just to sit in the presence of God and trust that healing comes. Here are four things for you. I want you to write these down. They're going to come up one at a time. If you want to take pictures of the screen, you're welcome to do that. Number one is this. Commitment to prayer means that we must know when to disengage in order to engage. In your life, you need to learn how to pray through distractions and through chaos. But you've also got to know if you want to engage the heart of God and mature as a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to disengage and say no to some stuff so you can get to a place with God where you can just enjoy 10, 15, 20 minutes of time. There are times where people are like, I just can't find time to be with God. But if you can find time to scroll through social media every day, you can find time to pause and be with God. Commitment to prayer is often say disengaging from something so that you can engage the heart of God. What do you need to say no to today to engage the heart of God? Number two is this, in prayer. In prayer, we seek guidance, direction, and assignment. 
Now, prayer is a lot of things. Prayer is about offering thanks. Prayer is the time of gratitude. Prayer is offering petitions. Prayer is about intercession. But if you have a prayer life where you are never asking God, God, what do you want from me? Your prayer life is going to be weak and it's going to be self-centered. And I'm not saying that if you have a prayer life where you're not asking these things from God for yourself, that it's weak or it's heretical or it's anti-God. If you want to mature and develop in your faith, your prayers at some point regularly need to have in them, God, what do you want from me? What do you want of me today? What do you want of me this week? Who do you want me to talk to? Whoever it is you want me to talk to, what do you want me to say? In prayer, we seek assignment. Number three, prayer teaches us how to speak about God and how to set people free. In prayer, Jesus received clarity from God. And this is in chapter one of Mark. This is early on in his ministry. He receives clarity from God that his mission is to go about and to preach the good news of the kingdom to all these other synagogues. It's to speak about God. In prayer, we learn how to talk about God. And what we see in the life of Jesus is when he preaches... Evil is fling. When he preaches, demons are being cast out. When we learn to talk about God, it sets people free. In prayer, we learn to talk about God. And as we talk about God, this should be encouraging, empowering other people, and setting other people free. Prayer leads to teaching and talking about God, which leads to liberation. Pharisees and teachers of the law were those who knew how to talk about God, but they placed burdens on people that people never needed to carry. Talking about God should lead to forms of liberation and freedom. And last but not least, do not be defined by someone else's expectations of you, but rather by what God wants of you. And this is where I want to ask the leaders, uh, prayer leaders and elders, if you will, go ahead and make your way in the room to receive people. And as our leaders move, I don't want you to start wrestling, like wrestling yet, getting ready to stand up and sing. I want you to listen to me. Every single day of your life, I don't care how old you are, every single day of your life, you are going to be hit with dozens of voices who are placing expectations on you, dozens of voices who are trying to define you. And not all these are bad, but if we find worth and we live for the worth of what other people expect of us or how other people are defining us, it's going to be miserable. You're going to lose hope. You're going to lose joy. It's in solitary places with God that we discover our worth. It's in those places we discover the identity that's greater than any way anybody else could define us. It's in those places we learn that not only do people have expectations of us, God has expectations of us too. And God's expectations of us are for a little bit of time and for development and faithfulness and commitment and character and fruit. God has some expectations too. And if you try to live, to line up with everyone else's expectations of you, you will fall into a a deep valley. But it's in prayer we learn not just what other people think about us. It's in prayer that we learn what God thinks about us. And if you're in need today of some voices of truth, just to speak into your life, reminding you of who you are in God, around this room, we have male and female leaders ready to receive you, speak blessing over you, pray for you, pray with you. If there's something you want to bring in front of this church or someone who wants to commit their life and surrender to Jesus today in baptism, we invite you to come to the front. Let's stand together and let's sing this song.